Um, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, get everything situated. I'm working. Andy, I'm going to check this thing out, see if we're working. Not yet, so you might just want to unplug and plug back in. There we go. Um, but I hope you guys are doing well this morning. We're going to be in uh, Romans 8. Last week, we finished up chapter 7. And as we talked about chapter 7, we talked about uh, the kind of the constant war that exists in the life of a believer between the flesh and the Holy Spirit. And we talked about that, that struggle and that strain um, to, to do what is good, to not do what is evil. And, and then it just, we talked about how that's, it's, it's hard. And it's hard for all of us. And it's, it's funny when I get up here and you, and you, you, you speak on things, and a lot of you have said this when you've shared devotionals or you've uh, maybe taught one of the Connect Kids lessons. When you're teaching on those things, or even in your Connect groups, it's like those are the things God just hammers home on you. And it just like is a crushing uh, weight at times. And that, I, that's where I found myself this week. It's like, man, constant war? Yeah, that's, um, I feel like that's what I've been in all week. It's just a, it's a constant war between that, that sin nature, that evil, versus the indwelling Holy Spirit. So, um, so I'm, I'm definitely there with you on that. And that's what we talked about um, last week. And it, and it kind of sets the stage perfectly for where we arrive this morning in the Scripture, which is chapter 8. Um, I don't know how much you've read of Romans or if you read ahead in our study or if you've ever studied Romans before, but a lot of uh, Bible scholars, preachers, Christians worldwide, they consider Romans chapter 8 to be one of the best, if not the best chapter in the entire Bible. Um, Romans chapter 8 has been described as the crown jewel of Scripture, which is a quite quite a statement. It's been described as the high watermark of the book of Romans. It's been described as an incomparable chapter. And it's a chapter that's even been labeled by some as the Christian's quote-unquote declaration of freedom. So this chapter is amazing. Um, some people devote their lives and many, many books to study in just this chapter. And so as we come to this chapter, I want to be intentionally slower. I think um, we could spend probably a month just on verse 1 uh, and, and leave it at that. We're not going to go that slow, uh, but I think we could. And I think if you're studying the Word uh, and you're really diving deep, you could as well. It's just, it's just that rich. We're going to cover the first, just the first four verses this morning. But to give you a kind of an idea of what this, this chapter, the, the significance, um, Dr. John Piper, this is his quote. And a lot of you know him. A lot of you hear his stuff and read his stuff. I think he's one of the greatest Bible teachers in our time, maybe the greatest. He says that the greatest book in the world is the Bible. Okay, we know that. The greatest letter in that book is Romans, and the greatest chapter in that letter is chapter 8. When someone with, with the Bible knowledge and the Bible teaching experience that Dr. Piper has makes a statement like that, it's, it makes me listen. It makes me realize, like, what are we getting ready to embark on? And it also excites me because if, if, if this is the greatest book, and we know it is, and if this is the greatest, uh, uh, ch- uh, maybe the greatest um, 
book entirety as far as Romans, and it very well could be. And this might be the best chapter. Woo, this is, uh, this is awesome. So um, this chapter is going to have a lot of themes, and you're going to see it play out over the next few weeks. And a lot of it is so, so positive, encouraging. It's rich with hope. It's rich with freedom and, and encouragement. And I, I, like I said, I want to just slow down so that we can kind of savor in that, that flavor of these verses. I kind of see it like when you, whatever your favorite meal is, and it's, it's time to eat that meal and you sit down. You don't want to rush through that, right? You want to savor the flavor, enjoy that moment, uh, maybe take some extra time to have conversation or, or whatever during that meal. That's my hope as we go through Romans chapter 8 is we don't rush through this, and I don't mean on Sunday mornings, but in your personal quiet times or in your connect groups as you're discussing this or, or whatever it might be, let's just take some time to breathe a little bit and, and to take in this chapter. Not that all Scripture should not be done this way, but I think specifically as we come to this place in the in the text, and we're, I guess we're 30 sermons into this, into this series, um, it's a good time to really reflect and, and, and be encouraged. So let me encourage you to do that while we do that here on Sunday mornings. Let me encourage you to do that on your, on your own, in your own uh, walk with the Lord. Well, let me go ahead and read these first, um, first couple of verses here, and this is all we're going to cover today. So starting in, in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is... Therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I want to offer you a very simple outline today. Sometimes I use outlines, sometimes I don't. I don't know how that works in my mind. But anyway, today I want to use a simple outline with just three simple questions, one-word questions. We're going to look at what, why, and how. So if you're taking notes or you like to kind of make things organized in your mind, think of it in terms of what are we looking at, uh, why, and then how. And starting with that first question, what, more specifically, the, the question I'm asking is this, what is the answer to the dilemma that Paul described at the end of chapter 7? And if you start with verse 1, like I said, we, I, I feel... By not spending more time on verse 1, I feel like we're doing an injustice because you could literally spend weeks and months just on verse 1. But verse 1 is the answer to the dilemma in chapter 7 concerning the, that what Paul lays out concerning that war between our sin nature and the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we always, week to week here in our series, we always need to be able to link these verses together. And so you might, you might get tired of me saying, This is built on what was said last week, and this is going to be built on what's going next week. We have to remember to do that when we're studying Scripture, because if we don't, we're we're isolating verses, we're kind of cherry-picking verses, and while that's not a terrible thing, it it can be, and we want to study everything in context. So as we link week to week, um, verse 1 is the answer to, if you glance back up into chapter 7, verses 24, 25, that, that... 
verse 1 is the answer to that dilemma. Uh, Dr. John MacArthur, he calls verse 1 the most hopeful verse in all of Scripture. That's a heavy statement, the most hopeful verse in all of Scripture. There's a lot of hopeful verses in Scripture. And for a man like that to say it's the most hopeful, that gives me a lot of hope. Um, and, and one of the reasons he says that, and one of the reasons we know that, is when you come out of that, that chaos and that fog of war that we've been talking about the last two weeks, and it's just that constant strain and that constant just never that grip that kind of holds on to you, it, it is so good to come to verse 1, and we read, there is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, you talk about, that lets me know that when I have weeks like I had this week, or when I have those weeks where the sin nature is just rampant and wild, and you're, you're going through those storms, and sometimes it might not be sin nature, it might be just circumstances of life, and you just had nasty stuff going on out of your control. This, what Romans 8, 1 tells me is that we can weather those storms because there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We know with full confidence we will not be condemned. We cannot lose our salvation, and we are totally and eternally secure in Christ. I mean, it, end of story. It gets no better than verse 1. But the next couple of verses in, in chapter 8 tell us why we are secure in Christ. But before I get to those verses, I want to I really relay to you the gravity of verse 1. I want to read it one more time. There is, therefore now, therefore, going back to what was talked about in chapter 7, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So therefore, that, that word's alluding back to those things we covered, the fir- really the first seven chapters, but specifically the end uh, of chapter 7. If you remember chapter 7, Paul asked this question, where he makes this statement, which I can definitely agree with on myself this week, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There is the dilemma that I am wretched, I am evil, there is nothing good in me. That's what, that's what Paul said in Romans 7. And then he begins to answer that question with verse 25 going into verse 1 of chapter 8. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What does that word mean, condemnation? So it's a legal term, right? Y'all have heard it before. And it usually means if, if you're condemned to something, you either have a charge being held against you, so you've been condemned for a crime, okay? Or you have a debt to pay. You, uh, you've been condemned by, you know, the IRS, the, the house has been condemned, the, the business has been condemned because there's a, there's a debt to pay. There's a, there's a charge against you. And the, the, that word, no condemnation, or that phrase, no condemnation, I want you to know it includes both the sentencing and the punishment for what the sins we've committed, both the sentencing and the punishment. So we receive neither. We receive neither the sentencing or the punishment for, for what we deserve because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, which paid our penalty totally and eternally, meaning that through his death, Jesus put us completely out of reach of condemnation. So we are full, when we are born, we are fully condemned by the things that we are and the things that we do, the, the evil nature, oh, wretched man that I am. We are condemned. But Jesus said, when I go to the cross, I'm taking you and I am positionally placing you 
outside of the grip, outside of the realm of condemnation. It cannot reach you. You can't just backslide into condemnation. You can't just have a bad week and up condemnation. He said, I am, because of what I'm doing on the cross, I am taking you positionally out of condemnation's reach. And Jesus paid the full penalty in advance for our sins. And when he paid that penalty, I want you to know that he paid that penalty long before you ever committed a sin, right? Everybody in this room wasn't living when Jesus walked this earth and when he died on the cross for your sin. And I want you to know that there is nothing that you've ever done or that you ever could do that A, Jesus does not know about. Okay, that's the first thing. Know, know that, that there's, well, you may not know about it, but Jesus knows about it. But number two, there's nothing you could done, you could have done, or that you ever will do that Jesus did not die for. So there, there's, there, there's a sense of dying for your past sins, ones you've already committed, but also he died for your future sins. And in, in a sense, when he died, they were all future sins, right? So you had not, you weren't even thought of. And he died for your sins that you had not committed because you did not exist. So if you're, if you're thinking this morning, and I know I find myself in this trap many, many times, man, you don't know, you don't know what kind of secret sins that I have in my past. There's, there's no way you know. And, or maybe it's you have no idea what I'm secretly struggling with right now. You don't know what I said and what I did this week, what I thought this week. You don't know, and you're right. You know what? You're right. I don't know. I have no idea. But I do know who, do, who does know, and that is Jesus. That not only does he know your past, not only does he know your present, but he knows the sins that you don't even know about that you're going to commit. Now, if that's not hopeful and helpful, I don't know what is. And when he went to the cross, he died for all of it. It was all future sin at that point. So you're not going to reach a point in your walk with the Lord where you're going to commit a sin, no matter what that sin is, that Jesus said, no, wow, I didn't see that coming. That really threw me off guard. Dad, why in the world did you do that one? When I went to the cross, I was not thinking that you would ever do something like that. It never happens like that. When he went to the cross, he had every sin you would ever commit, the ones you don't even know about yet, on his mind as he died for you. Y'all remember the hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him, to him we owe? I, I love that hymn. It's, it's been, I think here in the last few years, it's been arranged and performed a lot of different ways. They're all really good. But it, what makes that song so incredibly powerful is the lyrics. And I, I don't have the whole song up here, but I wanted to show you a little bit. Here, the chorus of that song, if you're not familiar with it, says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And, and if you go into the last verse, the whole song's great, but the last verse says, And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Those words were written in the 1800s. And they could have been written this morning as relevant as those words are and as powerful as those words are. And it's a reminder that our standing in Christ has nothing to do with us. That's what Paul said in chapter 7. Yet, 
we have been completely forgiven and we can stand confidently, as those lyrics say, before his throne. Why? Because he paid it all. He paid it all. So positionally and eternally, I want you to see this, like if I, I think in terms of like timelines and everything needs to be linear. So if you're working on a goal and I started here, then I need to be here and then I need to be here. So if you're thinking in terms of your life and you're thinking in terms of where you are in the scheme of life and, and your spiritual walk, I want you to see yourself as positionally and eternally secure. Like you can't be not secure. You can't be moved into a place that's, eh, that's kind of iffy. Not sure Jesus is on your side in that situation. So positionally and eternally, you are secure in Christ because of his sacrifice on the cross. Then if we go to the second question, and I mentioned it, it's coming in those next couple of verses. Paul explains why we are secure in Christ. Look at what he, what he says in these next couple of verses, starting in, in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. You may not know this, and I didn't know it until I read it somewhere this week, but the Apostle Paul uses the word for our word for, F-O-R, 17 different times in chapter 8 of Romans alone. And he, not every time, but he mainly uses that word to mean because. So when you're reading some of the scripture, it's a really good idea just on the English side of things as we translate and we read. It's a good idea to maybe insert where you see for, insert the word because. Now, not in every situation, but in a lot of these. And, and that is so important Because what Paul is doing there with because is he's linking things logically. One thing I love, there's a lot of things I love about Paul. But one thing I love about him is we know the guy was extremely intelligent. He was trained, I mean, intelligence through the roof, awesome. But he was also very logical. And he's not not just throwing random truth at you and then expecting you to catch it. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. He's saying, for this is this because of this, because of this, because of this. A plus B equals C because A plus B, you know, he, he lays that all out in a logical way that even people that is as slow as me can read this and like, oh, okay, because, because of this, because of that, that's why this is going on. And so when you read this, it really makes it a lot different when we look at that word for and at least in our minds translate it as because. So then when you read verses one through three together, I want you to see how this logically makes sense. And I've inserted those becauses where we need to. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. For because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You see that, what's going on there? He's linking everything, all lining it up. One, two, three, four. And it makes so much sense in our minds when you, when you insert that. So the law of the spirit of life referenced in, in verse 2 is obviously, it's obviously the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, is what we've talked about. It's actually going to be mentioned, I can't remember, X number of times in, in, in uh, chapter 8. There's a, it's, a, it's mentioned a lot of times in chapter 8. 
Um, but the law of the spirit of life is, that is the Holy Spirit. And, and John MacArthur has a quote. He says, it's only the Holy Spirit. We know it's the only the Holy Spirit that's, that's quoted here or that's being mentioned here by Paul because the Holy Spirit is the only person that can bring spiritual life to a heart that is spiritually dead. And if you think about that, there's, there's nobody else that can do that. Uh, only God can do that. And so when he says the law of the spirit of life, make sure you understand the, the significance of the Holy Spirit's work there. And just keep in mind just how amazing it is what Paul is describing in these verses. If you go back to set, chapter 7, verse 24, this is the same man three or four verses earlier. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And now he's saying that the Holy Spirit has set you free. He's joined you to the living Christ. You want to talk about polar opposite extremes? This is like night and day, war and peace. And he's literally talking about death and life in just a span of three verses, four verses. So we, we look at the why, we, we see the, the why we're securing Christ, but then how, that, that third question, how can that massive change occur? And again, Paul uses that word for, just like we talked about at the beginning of verse 3, it says, for God, or because God, has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the law is great, and we know the law is great, but the law could not do this, okay? The law could not do this, and this is, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You were brought from death to life only because God did what the law could not do. And how did he do that? By sending his own son to be condemned for our sin. That's the gospel. That right there is the heart of the gospel. The law is great. The law exposes sin. We need the law. We need to follow the law. But the law is powerless to do what Jesus did by coming, what God the Father did by sending Jesus, and that was for Jesus to take on our sin and to die in our place. I love the way Paul would say it later in 2 Corinthians. Uh, I was really pumped a couple weeks ago because this was the memory verse for um, our Abide kids here. So I'm like, yes, this is perfect. because this is, this is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, he was perfect, so that in him, that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, to be sin, who knew no sin. So that, so that in him, there again, Paul's linking it. Why did he do that? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The writer of Hebrews also referenced the gospel by highlighting the same truth and by specifically looking at how Jesus took on the likeness of flesh, yet was obviously without sin, and therefore was a worthy and acceptable sacrifice to a holy and perfect God. This is what Hebrews says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us, people. Therefore, he has to be made like his brothers in every respect. He's in human flesh so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, we know we think about the cross and we think about that being the execution of Jesus. And it was. That was what the whole, the Jews and the Romans, that's what they were doing. They were, that was an execution. It was a public, nasty, brutal execution. But what was going on really way much more than that physical execution was Jesus on the cross was executing sin's power over us. And he was taking away sin's dominance over us. And he was taking away sin's reign in us. So yes, the people and the Romans and the Jews and everybody, they thought they were executing Jesus. Jesus was executing sin. Sin once condemned us. Those that are not in Christ, they are still under that condemnation. But through the cross, for those who have believed in Christ, Christ condemned sin. So where sin once condemned us, now Christ says, no, I'm done with that. I'm condemning you, sin. Sin is done. He saves us from sin. Where sin condemns, now Jesus, through the cross, condemns sin once and for all. Many of you probably heard some version of this story. Uh, It's been around for at least 30 or or 40 years, probably longer than that. And and the details of this story differ depending on the source. I found this week multiple different sources that were quoting different, um, you know, historical references. But anyway, regardless of how many times I've heard this story, and maybe you've never heard it, uh, but even if you have, no matter how many times I've heard it, it never loses its power when I hear it in terms of being a perfect and beautiful picture of the gospel. Uh, I was reading this week, some people said this is a true story, and and I I would lean to believe that at least parts of this are true. A lot of other people claim it's just an illustration. Either way, I don't really care because it has an incredible picture. It paints an incredible picture of the love and the sacrifice of the gospel. And it's so fitting for these verses in Romans 8. Let me, let me read this to you. So there was, there was once a bridge that spanned a very large river. And during most of the day, the, the bridge would sat with its length running up and down the river, paralleled with the banks, allowing the ships to pass through freely on both sides of the bridge. But at certain times each day, a train would come along and the bridge would be turned sideways across the river, which allowed the train to cross it. A switchman or a watchman would, sat, would sit in a, in a shack on one side of the river where he operated the controls to turn the bridge and lock it into place as the train crossed. One evening, as the watchman was waiting for the last train of the day to come, he looked off into the distance through the dimming twilight and he caught sight of the train lights. He stepped out onto the control deck and he waited until the train was within a prescribed distance. Then he was to turn the bridge. He turned the bridge into position, but 
to his horror, he found the locking control did not work. If the bridge was not securely in position, it would cause the train to jump the tracks and go crashing into the river. This was a passenger train with many people on board. So he immediately left the bridge, turned across the river, and he hurried across the bridge to the other side of the, of the bank of the river where there was a lever switch that he could hold manually to operate the lock manually. And so he would have had to hold the lever back with his own body weight as the train crossed safely across the river. He could hear the rumble of the train now. And so he took hold of the lever and he leaned backward to apply his body weight to it, locking the bridge in place. And he kept applying the pressure to keep the mechanism locked. After all, many lives depended on this one man's strength. Then, coming across the bridge from the direction of his control shack, he heard a sound that made his blood run cold. Daddy, Daddy, where are you? It was his four-year-old son was crossing the bridge to look for him. His first impulse was to cry out to his son, Run! Run! The train is too close. The train is too close. But he knew that his son's tiny legs would never make it across that bridge in time. The man almost left his lever to snatch up his son and carry him to safety. But he realized that he could not make it back to the lever in time if he saved his son. Either many people on the train or his own son must die. He took a moment to make his decision, and the train sped safely and swiftly on its way, and no one on board was even aware of the tiny, broken body thrown into the river by the rushing train. Nor were they aware of the pitiful figure of the sobbing man still clinging to the locking lever long after the train had passed. They did not see him walking home more slowly than he had ever walked to tell his wife how their son had been brutally killed. If you can attempt to comprehend the emotions that went through that man's heart, then I think you begin to understand just a small glimpse of the feelings of our Father in Heaven when he sacrificed his son to the bridge, to the, to the gap between us and eternal life. I mean, is there, is there any wonder that the earth trembled when Jesus died? Is there any wonder that the skies darkened when the Son of God died? How do you think God feels now when people outright reject his sacrifice or unknowingly ignore it? Or maybe even worse, as believers speed along through our busyness and the circumstances of our day, and we don't give a second thought to what was exactly done through Jesus on the cross because of the love of the Heavenly Father and the love of the Son. Why did God make such a sacrifice? How could He make such a sacrifice? I have no idea. It's incomprehensible to most of us. If you put yourself in a situation like I just described, what would you do? 
The last verse, verse 4 in today's text, answers those questions for us. Look what it says in Romans 8, 4, last verse we're covering today. Why did he do it? And how did he do it? Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then he says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God sent his son to die for our sins so that, in order that, I love those words Paul uses, it makes things make sense in my mind, requirement of the law might be fulfilled and the penalty for our sin paid in full. But notice what else this verse says. For those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's where our power comes from. The Holy Spirit is where our power for obedience comes from. Which is why we have to walk in the Spirit moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. As we close, I'm going to ask Bo to come up. We're going to close in, in song. But I want you just to keep in mind the purpose of the gospel as we walk in the Spirit on a daily basis. John MacArthur, he summed up the purpose of the gospel. Well, I'm going to leave you with this quote. The purpose of the gospel is not to make men happy. The purpose of the gospel is not to make men happy, but to make them holy. That's our goal. When we're walking in the Spirit, you may not be happy. And that's not what it's about. It's about being holy. It's about bringing praise and honor to the one who made the sacrifice that is incomprehensible. That is our goal. And to use the Holy Spirit to do that and to use the power of the Holy Spirit to walk moment by moment. Lord, I just thank you for your word this morning. Every time I open your word, every time I speak on your word, I just want to fall on my face because I, I don't need to be up here. I'm not worthy of being up here. Yet, Lord, you, not only for me, but for every single person in this room and every single person in this world, you knew how bad we would mess up. Not only what we've done now to this point in the year 2019, but, Lord, you knew the things that we're going to do to break your heart in the years to come that we don't even know. And you still said you're worth it. You still sent Jesus. And Jesus came. And Jesus suffered and bled and was executed because of our sin. I don't understand it. I'll probably never understand it. But I thank you for it. Lord, may we be reminded today as we go out into the world where it is so easy because everything screams. It's all about you. It's all about your happiness. Do what makes you feel good. Lord, that it is not, it is not about that. It is about what makes us holy. And there is nothing 
in us that makes us holy except for your spirit. And Lord, I pray that we would lean heavy, lean heavy into the heart of the Holy Spirit in whatever circumstances, whatever trials, whatever difficulties, whatever heartbreak that we're facing. And I know there's a ton in this room right now. Some of which nobody in the room knows about except for just the one person that's struggling with it. But you know. Just like you know our sins, you know our trials. You know our struggles, you know our hurt, you know our pain. Lord, let us lean heavy, heavy into your spirit. And let us remember the purpose of the gospel is to make us holy. In your name.